All right. So you guys are going to need study guides and a pen. Some of the pens may or may not write. <laughs> I'm not going to guarantee <clears throat> which ones write and which ones don't. Um, but you all, you all are also going to need Bibles. So if you have a Bible, that's great. If you do not have a Bible, then you can borrow one from us over there on that rack over there. By the way, let me make this statement while y'all are getting your study guides, while you're getting your Bibles. Uh, so for a few weeks now, actually for several weeks, we've had uh, guest speakers come in. I have loved getting to hear our guest speakers. I've enjoyed getting to uh, hear the different voices, but they're preaching the same good news, the same gospel. I love it uh, to be able to do it. And I enjoy it. I grow with it every time that it happens. But what it does, guys, it makes me so ready and so excited to be back here to be able to teach. And I decided a while back that where I wanted to go with the next study we took was in the book of Nehemiah. So you guys are going to need to open your Bibles to Nehemiah, all right? Kudos to the first person who finds it, all right? First person who finds it gets, gets a thumbs, gets two thumbs up. You're already there? Double thumbs up. Double thumbs up. Next person gets a single thumbs up. Next person gets a single thumbs up. Are you there? Next person gets a single thumbs up. Are you got it? Single thumbs up back there. All right. You, well, you get, you get a left-handed single thumbs up then because it's a lefty. Huh? I'm just trying to say that my left side is my weak side, and so you got my weak side thumbs up. All right. So you're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be there for the next five weeks. And as I've been studying Nehemiah, and maybe it's because my brain goes here automatically in October... But as I was looking through the book of Nehemiah, I could not help but see the five solas of the Reformation. Does anyone know what the five solas of the Reformation are? One of them is right there underneath the word Nehemiah. Grace alone is one of them. Faith alone. Scripture alone. Through Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas. You guys will hear more about that as we go through. But you're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. And as I studied it and as I read through it, I couldn't help but see the solas jump off the page and how wonderful it was. So let's jump into it. What is the grace of God? First question right there. What is the grace of God? What is grace? What is the grace of God? Anybody have, a, anybody have an idea? What is grace? Someone who's not looking at the, the, the prompter back there. What is grace? You guys have heard that word a lot. I say it a lot. I know that Pastor Tim says it a lot. I know that it's been said a lot the past few weeks. So someone who, someone who has been in church for a long time, what's grace? And then there were crickets. Someone who maybe has, yeah, 
Letting it slide? So maybe just being like, it's okay, it's all right? Well, the word is grace. What is grace? So I don't know if that's the word you're looking for or not. I'm glad it's helped you through thick and thin, through hard times and good times. So here's the definition I'm going to give you of grace. All right? Grace is undeserved love, mercy, and favor from God. The grace of God is undeserved love, mercy, and favor from God. These are some words that should be a lot more familiar to us. What is the grace of God? You guys were stumped about the word grace. But what is love? What is love, guys? Can, y'all, can anybody say, yeah, what is love? Yeah, there's, it's having a feeling of affection, a wanting to be with that thing, right? A desire to be with that thing or that person. What is mercy? Have mercy on me. Is that saying, give me a birthday party? No. So, sympathy? Okay. What's favor? Have favor on me. What is that? Can you have a favorite? What does that mean? It means you like it the best. You favor it above all. That went completely over y'all's heads. (laughs) So what is the grace of God? It's undeserved love, mercy, and favor from God. Why am I telling you this as we're going to jump into Nehemiah? Let me tell you one story real quick that will hopefully set the stage and set the tone for what we're going to see as we jump into Nehemiah chapter 1. There's a story that a very famous preacher named R.C. Sproul used to teach, uh, that he used to tell about when he was a teacher. Now, he went to teach at a university, and he was to teach the Old Testament class. And this was a large class. He had 250 freshmen in that class. And on the first day, he tells the class that there are going to be three term papers while you're in this study. The first term paper is due on September 30th. The second is due on October 30th. And the third and last is due on November the 30th. If you do not turn in your term paper by those days, then you will get an F. He asks the class, do you understand? The class says, yes, we understand. He says, do you agree to this? And the class says, yes, we agree to it. Now, he is a kind guy, and so he says, listen, I understand if, you know, there is a death in the family, and all of a sudden you cannot be there. there, This was before the times of email and stuff like that. You had to actually be there and turn in the papers. He said, I, I, will, may, I will understand those kinds of circumstances, but apart from something crazy like that, if you do not turn in the term paper, you will receive an F. So the first term paper comes due September 30th. And he stands up there, and out of the 250 students, 
25 of them don't have their term paper. And they come in, I mean, just trembling and just so upset. And they come in and they say, Dr. Sproul, I'm so sorry. I was not able to get the term paper for this reason or that reason. And none of them were the earth-shattering reason that he said he would allow it at the beginning of the class. But he looked at them, 25 students, and he says, okay, I'll give you three more days to get the paper into me. But this will be the last time this happens, right? Oh, yes, sir. This will be the last time. This won't happen again. I promise we will make sure the other term papers are on time. Well, October 30th rolls around. And on that date, out of the 250 people in the class, 50 of them show up without their term papers. And those 50 come in not scared at all they come in and they walk up to Dr. Sproul and they said, we were not able to get our term papers finished. Can we have an extension? And he says to them, this is going to be the last time? And they said, yeah, this will be the last time. We promise. Okay. For you 50 students, you can have three more days. On November 30th, the last term paper is due, and out of the 250 students, 100 of them show up without their term papers. And they're coming in like it's no big deal at all. They're cutting up. They're joking. They are taking it like there is no problem whatsoever. And they walk up. And they'll say to each other, oh, it's okay. Dr. Sproul's a big softy. And they walk up. They sit in their class and, hey, I'm sorry we didn't turn it in. We don't have it today, but we'll get it to you the next few days. And then he pulls out his little uh, grading book. Sets it down. And he looks out there, and I'll use y'all's name. He says, Kalen, do you have your term paper? He says, no. He says, you get an F. Cameron, do you have your term paper? No. You get an F. Starts announcing it before the class like that until all of a sudden someone in the back yells, that's not fair! To which he stops and he looks up at them and he says, that's not fair. We'll, we'll pretend it was Andre. He said, Andre, that's not fair. He says, do you have your term paper? And he says, no. That's an F. And he says, you want fairness? He says, I'll give you fair. He says, you also didn't have your term paper on time in October. So that's an F as well. To which the whole class was just devastated because they realized an important lesson right there and he went on to expound it to them. Here's the important lesson. We get confused so often between fairness and justice and grace. 
You see, when we come to talking about God, when we come to talking about Him, we look at what God does and we see that He gives grace. He gives good things to people who don't deserve it. And at first, that grace amazes us. There's even a song, the most popular song of all time. It's called Amazing Grace. The first time we hear about grace, it blows our minds. It amazes us. It brings us to a point where we want to sing about it. Because grace means they're giving us something we didn't deserve. They're giving us undeserved love or mercy or favor. And we're blown away by it. But because of the nature of who we are, we don't always stay amazed at grace. Rather, we move from being amazed at grace to expecting grace. There's a big difference between being amazed at grace and expecting grace. If you expect grace... If you walk up to someone and expect them to love you, expect them to give you mercy, or expect them to favor you, that's not grace. That's you planting your expectations upon them. We'll move not only from being amazed to expecting it to demanding it. That's not fair. I demand your grace. And that's an entirely different kind of matter. As we look at the book of Nehemiah, particularly here in this first chapter, you've got to understand that Nehemiah is about to fall on the grace of God. And before we take ourselves to that place where he falls upon God's grace, his undeserved love, mercy, and favor. Before we get to that spot, you have to understand that this grace is not something that you should just assume is there. And if it is there, it's not because of something Nehemiah does or the Israelites do. It's because of something else entirely different. Let me pray for us. And let's jump in. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you. We do praise you. I thank you for this lesson. I thank you for your grace. And I thank you that we're going to have the opportunity to see your grace on display and the reason for your grace. God, I ask that you would be glorified and that you would make us desire you more and more. It's your son's name, Jesus. We do ask these things and for his sake. Amen. Now, Nehemiah, for anyone who's ever read it before, the first thing you think of when you hear Nehemiah is, oh yeah, Nehemiah built a wall. And you guys will understand that as we pull through the, the, the book, okay? Because guess what Nehemiah goes and does? He builds a wall, okay? So, in fact... And, and, and when we think of building a wall in our 21st century mindset, what's the first thing, the first person who comes to mind when we think of building a wall? Donald Trump. Every single time. Listen, 
Back in 2016, back in 2016, when um, Katie McPherson was still in Awana, all right, uh, and when she was still in Mr. Keith and Miss Michelle's Sunday school class, they were sitting down in their Sunday school class before it began, and she was just drawing a little picture. She was just a little girl. She's just drawing a little picture, and it's this little stick figure, and she's drawing all this stuff, and she looks up at us, and she smiles, and she says, I just drew Trump's wall, and she holds it up, and psh, Sure enough, it's just a wall, all right? So when we think of Nehemiah building a wall, we think of Trump and his wall. Even that guy sitting right back there, Joe, when I said we're going through Nehemiah, he said, I'm so glad that we're talking about Donald Trump in here, all right? And he was messing with me. Surprise, surprise, we're talking about Donald Trump right now, Joe. But no, Nehemiah is not just about a wall. Not even close to being just about a wall. Not even close to being anywhere near Donald Trump. There is so much here. So much in the book of Nehemiah that does impact where we are today. But it also impacts the entire world as we look at it. Because these truths we're going to look at, man, they go all over the place. All right, so let me, I mean, real quick give you just kind of a history of what's happened before we get into Nehemiah. All right, so the Israelites, God's chosen people, they were in captivity again. Now, we've heard about them being captive when they were slaves in Egypt with Pharaoh. You guys have heard that story, right? Who comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go? Moses. Moses comes up there, let my people go. God does an incredible work, and guess what happens to God's people, the Israelites? They go. All right, so they're in captivity again, but it's not the Egyptians this time. Now they've been conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, okay? And they've been conquered due to their wickedness and their idolatry. You've got to understand that. You have to know that. They were put into captivity. They were made slaves because they broke their relationship with God. They broke it. And because they broke it, God turned them over to their wickedness and to their idolatry. And when they tried to stand on their own and with their idols and with their false gods, they quickly were captured by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And by the time we get to Nehemiah, the Persians have come along, and the Persians have even wiped out the Assyrians, and they've wiped out the Babylonians, and so now the Persians are in charge of the Israelites. But the Persians don't really have anything for these little Jewish Israelite people. They don't care anything about that because here's the reality of it. They're just little people. And anywhere they go, they're not like everybody else. Anywhere they go, their God comes with them. You see, if you go and if you conquer the Babylonians, you can conquer their gods because if you wipe out the Babylonians, their god's gone. If you wipe out the Israelites, there's something pesky about their god. He goes with them, and you can't do anything about him. You can't wipe him out by wiping out the people. And so the Persians don't really want anything to do with these Israelites. And so what they do is they say, hey, listen, uh, the, uh, King Cyrus comes to rule. And he says, listen, Israelites, 
I know that y'all have been slaves. We took you from Israel. I know we took you into this land. I know that happened with the Babylonians. We've conquered them now. We really don't want you around. So Cyrus looks at the Israelites and says, you guys can kind of start going back to Israel. Y'all can start going back there. And so he gets this guy who was born, uh, uh, he was born an Israelite, but he was born after everybody had been captured. So he'd never known anything except for slavery and captivity. And he grabs this guy named Zerubbabel and he says, Zerubbabel, you're going to be our governor down there. And Zerubbabel goes down there and he looks around and Zerubbabel looks at the situation. He says, everything about Israel has been destroyed. We need to rebuild the temple. We've got to rebuild the temple. And so Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. But he runs into all kinds of trouble while he's there. From the people, the people who weren't taken into captivity, the people who got left behind, the people who were still around, they got ticked off at Zerubbabel constantly because he was a foreigner. And they're saying, you're going to build us a temple? You're a foreigner. He had trouble constantly. That was Zerubbabel. And then you've got a guy named Ezra. And Ezra is sent by King Artaxerxes, that, 60 years after Zerubbabel. Artaxerxes sent Ezra and says, hey, you've got this temple, but they don't really know what they're doing over there. You go and you teach them what the law says. You go and teach them what your holy book says. You go do that. And so Ezra goes over there. And he starts teaching the law. And he starts seeing that the people who were left there, the people who were never taken into captivity, they were just as bad as the ones who were. In fact, they might have been worse because they were supposed to be God's representatives still on the earth. And what they had done is they had gone and gotten foreign wives and they had had uh, children out of those marriages and they had started growing up and they're supposed to be loving God, but instead they're, they're sacrificing to idols, they're worshiping pagan deities, all these kinds of things. And so Ezra says, no, no, this cannot be. We are supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be God's chosen people. And actually in Ezra chapters 9 and 10, there's this mass divorce that happens it's an incredible uh, parallel, uh, as I've been looking at it, that we don't really have time to get into about when you love your sin as a believer and when you, when you get intertwined with your sin, you will be called to leave it. And when you're called to leave it, it just messes up everything about you. You're left just feeling vacant for a time because you've wrapped so much of yourself up in this sin. So we've got Ezra going back, Artaxerxes is still the king. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halkaliah, uh, of, excuse me, of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them, this is Nehemiah, asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem 
is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah in chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 is given a grim report. A grim report. Now Nehemiah is still in exile. But the remnant is in great trouble. Now, the remnant are the people who are already there in Jerusalem, the ones who maybe had never been taken away into captivity, the ones who've returned now. The remnant is in trouble. And why is the remnant in trouble? I mean, they've got the temple. The temple's been rebuilt. So what's the problem? They've got the law. Ezra's teaching them the law. What's the problem? The problem is this. If they do not secure the city, it will be overcome again. If they do not secure the city, it will be overcome again. Let me give this analogy real quick. Have you guys, um, let's say that there is a a lake that has a lot of pollution being just dumped into the lake. Tons and tons and tons of pollution every day dumped into the lake. And you go up there and you say, we need to clean up that lake. And you go and you start getting your teams together and you start working through the lake and you start pulling out all the garbage, all the gunk. You get every bit of it out that you can possibly get, but you never block up all of the channels of pollution that are coming into it. Will you ever, ever have that lake finished and clean. Why? Because it's been left open to pollution and garbage. And so understand, these Israelites have been going back, they've rebuilt the temple, they've got the law, but they're still wide open. Anybody could come in at any time and they could send them down the same spiral that they had just gotten out of. Anybody could do it. And the Bible tells us a few times, uh, let's, uh, we're going to flip over, I need someone to open up to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Someone get that, 1 Peter, who wants it, Casey? I need someone to open up to Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Who's got that one? Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Who's got it? Come on, guys, who's got it? All right, you got it. All right. Adults, I'm going to have to get y'all to start opening up the Bible if these guys are gun-shy about it, all right? So, first up, he gets a grim report. 1 Peter chapter 5, 8-11, what does it say for us, Casey?
God desires to put his people in a firm foundation in a good place. That is his desire. That is what he has said he will do. But here's the thing, guys. If you've left yourself open to the calamities and the, the things of this world, all of a sudden you have to recognize you've got an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom may devour, and there will be people coming for you because if you are a Christian, you are God's chosen one. Israel was God's chosen people, and they're left wide open. What about Matthew 12, 43 through 45? It's a strange story, but it's really interesting here. Here Jesus is talking and he sits there and he says a really weird thing when you hear he says there's an unclean spirit and it leaves a guy. And then it goes around through waterless places, meaning kind of like a desert place, it can't find anywhere to rest. And so it decides it's going to go back to the person it just left. And when that unclean spirit goes back to the place it just left, the place is cleaned up, the place is all in order, but he looks around and he can just easily go right back into it. And he all of a sudden says, hey, I'm not coming here by myself. He grabs seven other unclean spirits, and they completely trash the place again, and it's worse than it was the first time. If you have a time when you, yes, you come to church maybe, yes, you hear the word of God, but you never, ever, ever do anything about it outside of just coming and hearing it, if you leave yourself open, all of a sudden you're setting yourself up for something that could, that could seriously damage and hurt and cause problems. And so Nehemiah looks at Israel like we need to, is you must secure yourself from future attacks. You must secure yourself from the attacks of the world, from the attacks of the evil one. God's people are always under attack and we must be able to prepare for it and we're going to prepare ourselves in our personal walk and in our surroundings i need someone to open up ephesians 6 10 through 13 who's got it come on andre uh in our per and in our surroundings psalm 1 1 through 4 who's got it all right go for it josiah understand that in this grim report nehemiah hears and he recognizes yes they have they have the temple, they have the law there, but if they leave themselves open to attack, if they haven't prepared themselves for what's going to come, then they're not going to be able to survive it. So in our personal walk, how do we prepare ourselves? Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. <laughs> Let's go within our surroundings. Psalm 1, 1 through 4. That'll give you a few more seconds, all right? In our, in our surroundings, how do we prepare ourselves? Thank you. 
in our surroundings, what that's telling us is that this guy doesn't look at all the rest of the world and go pursuing that. No, he distances, he distances himself from it. He gets away from it. He divides himself up. When, not that he never talks to someone who's outside, but he, he makes a clear line and says, there is something different about me and you. And even though we can talk and even though we can engage ourselves, in my surroundings, I'm going to put up something there so that you're not going to pull me into your evil. And in our personal walk, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Armor. The whole armor. All right, in our personal walk, Christ has told us that you will come under attack. You will come under snares. People will be going up. So he says there is an armor of God. And what he's talking about there is, is, is when you look into it, when you start jumping into it, and I know Josh went through it with you uh, when we did our night of worship. Not me, Josh, but Josh from First Baptist Pinson. He went through it with you. Here's the thing. What we understand that armor of God to be is it's a clothing of righteousness. It's a clothing. It's a, a putting on of armor that will shield you from the attacks of the enemy, of the devil. And when you break it down in every single one of those pieces of armor, you recognize that Christ has fulfilled each and every one of those things. And so what it's telling you there is that in our personal walk, you've got to throw yourself into Christ. What we talked about Sunday night. I see Christ. I'm going for Christ. I am pursuing him with everything I've got. He is my focus. He is my aim. He is my direction. I'm going for him. Christ is my focus. And so in my personal walk... I throw myself into Christ and in pursuing Him in my surroundings because I'm throwing myself into Christ. I distance myself from people who would pull me off of that path. Not that I don't ever walk with them and talk with them and try and pull them with me, but I don't let them yank me off of the drive. We must prepare ourselves. And then this we see in Nehemiah 1, 5 through 11, Nehemiah and a grace requested. Now, Nehemiah knows that they cannot do this on their own. They cannot achieve that on their own. Just for the sake of, uh, of time, I'm not going to have you flip to Ezekiel 39. Let me just kind of explain to you. Nehemiah knows that Israel cannot turn back to God completely enough. He knows that the reason why the city has been destroyed, why everything's gone down, is because they'd sinned against God. Their hearts were wicked. Their hearts were evil. 
And so Ezekiel 39 kind of spells out the wickedness of the Israelites and what they had pursued. All right, so you guys can look that up on your own time, but it's kind of Ezekiel 39, 21 through 24. talks about why they were in captivity in the first place. Why all that had started was because of their wickedness and their idolatry. So who does Nehemiah blame for the exile? You guys actually have Nehemiah's prayer written on your study guide. So what I want you to do, I want you to take your pens and we're going to go through that prayer. We're going to do this three different times. And during those three different times, I'm going to ask you to do three different tasks, okay? The first time, you're going to be looking at who Nehemiah blames for the exile. Okay, I'm going to read you the prayer and every time you see who uh, is blamed for the exile, I want you to underline it. You're going to see a lot of times it says things like sin or um, you're going to see uh, you're going to see sin a, a lot here. Uh, you're going to see uh, is it calamity that we see? You're going to see a few things here. And I'll try and point them out as I read as who is who it is that he is blaming for the exile. So let me read. Verse 5, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Who is Nehemiah blaming for the exile? Who is he blaming the Israelites, the people, God's chosen, they're the ones to blame. God is not to blame for this, but the people are because of their sin. Now, I want us to read those same verses, and I want us to look at it with this. Who is great enough to fix it? Who is great enough to make this right? And for this one, what I want you to do is I want you to put a box around the places where you see the person named who is great enough to fix it. Now, as I read it, uh, I'll try and bring those out. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. 
Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. Who is it, obviously, that, God, that, that Nehemiah is looking to to fix the problem? It's God. Only God can do it. And why would God fix it? I just want you to put a parenthesis around the promise. All right, in verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Why would he do it? Why would he... Bring them back. It's not because of anything they would do. It's not because of any strength that they have in their hands. No, in fact, they're the ones who caused it. So why would God do it? Here's why God would do it. Because God made a promise. God's not going to do it because of them. God's going to do it because of him. You need to understand something, guys. That if God brings these people from calamity into rejoicing, if he brings them from broken walls to a rebuilt life, it's not going to be because they deserved it. It's going to be because of grace. And so what we see here is that Nehemiah has thrown himself upon grace. I don't deserve this. We don't deserve this. But I know you're good, God. And I know you're great. And I know that you have promised some amazing, incredible things. So God, I throw myself on your grace. And I ask that you let it be now that we see these good things. This is requesting grace and it's being amazed by it. If it's done, it's going to be you who does it, God. Understand the sin of Israel was so deep that they had to throw themselves on the grace of God. And guys, our sin is just as deep and is just as great. And so our Understanding must be as we look at Nehemiah, we must throw ourselves upon the grace of God. I do have some more Bible verses. I'm just going to, for the sake of time, I'm just going to quote for you Ephesians 2 8 and 9. All right. The rest, of, write the rest of them down because they're, they're so wonderful to look up and they're so incredible to see when you look at it through this lens that, that there's grace to be had, but we must throw ourselves upon the grace of God. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no man may boast. 
for by grace you are saved. If these people are going to be saved, it's going to be based upon God's goodness and His mercy and His love and His favor, His grace, not upon our merit. If we are going to be saved, it's going to be based on the same thing. I'm going to end with this. A great responsibility. That's Nehemiah 1.11. What do I mean by a great responsibility? Here it is. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Says it right there in verse 11. I was the cupbearer. What does it mean to be the cupbearer? Do you guys know what that means? Yeah. He, he served drinks to the king himself. This had to be a guy who was incredibly favored, incredibly trusted. Because back then, if you wanted to kill a king, you weren't going to get in there with a sword. You weren't going to get in there with a bow and arrow. You weren't going to kill him like that. The most common way to kill the king was through, what do you think? Poison. And if you could get the cupbearer on your side, guess what? It became very easy to poison the king. So the cupbearer had to be someone remarkably trusted. Unbelievably high ranking. So Nehemiah is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. He has a place where he can go to King Artaxerxes. He can explain what's going on, but you just don't do that. You don't just go up to the king and say, hey king, I've got this idea. He's in, he has a great responsibility. He has an incredible position to where he can do something about this wall. But is he going to? Well, we'll have to wait and see next week what happens. I do want to tell you this. The study guide looks different. You did not fill out all the questions. All right? I want you to take those questions home with you. I want you to ask yourself those questions. And I want you to answer them. You don't have to share them with anyone other than yourself. I want you to see, as you look through it, if you're falling on the grace of God, if prayer is as powerful a thing to you as it was to Nehemiah. Let me pray for us now, and our band's going to play some songs, and we'll worship this great and gracious God. Lord, we do come to you, we love you, and we praise you, and I thank you for your grace, and I thank you for your goodness, and I thank you for blessings that we don't deserve, but yet you give them so freely. I ask that you would use the lessons that we're going uh, through Nehemiah together on and that you would, you would use them to make us more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we ask these things and for his sake. Amen.